Welcome to Horty Springer Health Law Expressions podcast on a segment we like to call the Kickback Chronicles. I'm Henry Cassell. And I'm Hala Mazoffer. We invite you to kick back and relax as we dive into this week's case. The title of today's podcast is Friendship is in the I-E-Y-E of the Beholder, and for reasons that will soon become obvious. So today's case takes us to the state of Minnesota to look at a recent jury verdict involving the Cameron Ellen Group doing business as Precision Lens and Paul Ellen, the founder and majority owner of Precision Lens. Now, Precision Lens is a distributor of intraocular lenses, or we'll call them IOLs, and other products related to ophthalmic surgeries, including cataract surgeries. As part of its business, Precision Lens provides these supplies to ophthalmologists and facilities. Now, although this was a recent verdict, the story of this particular legal battle starts over 10 years ago in 2013 when a Ketam lawsuit was filed against Precision Lens and Ellen. Now, Henry, for our adoring audience today that may not have heard our past episodes where we've discussed Ketam lawsuits, what are they and how does the government get involved? First, anyone who hasn't heard our previous podcast is really missing something. Shame <laughs> on you. Go back and we have them available in our library and we strongly urge you to listen to them. But to answer your question, there are several federal laws currently in effect that are intended to fight healthcare fraud, waste, and abuse, which are something that everyone in Congress, regardless of party, will always say is the aim of um, any federal law is to prevent fraud, waste, and abuse. While there is some level of overlap, one thing that these laws have in common is the Federal False Claims Act that we'll refer to as the FCA. The FCA is both a criminal and a civil statute. The federal government has obtained criminal convictions in the healthcare sector under the statute. However, most of the cases that are brought under the FCA in healthcare are civil. So if the government wins, they are awarded monetary damages. And this statute is the epitome of the old saying, to the victor go the spoils. First, if the government can prove its case, then the government is entitled to three times the amount of the claims at issue. In addition, the statute allows a per-claim penalty, and that penalty, as of January 30th, 2023, can range from a low of 13508 to a high of $27,018 per claim. Not only that, but on January 30th of each year, these amounts increase, and that's why there's such weird numbers. They started out nice round numbers, and they've been increasing annually for several years now. And um, so you have to check the per-claim penalty in effect at the time the claims are submitted. So using a simple numbers to give you an idea of how the penalties under the FCA can add up quickly, let's assume that the amount of a particular claim is $100 per claim, and 1,000 claims are submitted in violation of the FCA. Therefore, in our example, the government is paid $100,000 that it should not have. But like I said, this is not all that the person who submitted the claim will have to pay back. In order to punish this conduct and to make others think twice before behaving in a similar manner, the amount of the penalties that can be recovered under the FCA are, as I said, three times that amount, which in our example is 300000 plus at the low end of the range, $13,508 per claim. And if you multiply that times 1,000 claims, 
That comes out to $13,508,000 or a total of $13,808,000 in penalties for $100,000 worth of false claims. So as you can see, the penalties permitted under this law add up quickly. However, that is not all. When Congress passed the FCA in 1863 to punish procurement fraud during the Civil War, they thought that the government may need help to enforce this law. As a result, <clears throat> Congress included a provision that was not in common at that time called the Key Tom Provisions. Key Tom, which can be, if you look on the internet, is pronounced several different ways, but essentially the most common appears to be Key Tam, as in it rhymes with Sam is the beginning of a Latin phrase that means he who pursues this action on our Lord the King's behalf as well as his own. This actually translates into providing a private party, technically a relator, but more commonly referred to as a whistleblower, with a financial incentive to act as a private U.S. Attorney General and bring the FCA case on behalf of the government. We won't go into the technical way that this is accomplished, but for our purposes, it is important to understand that if the case is initiated by a key TAM relator, and if the government is able to prove its False Claims Act claims, then the key TAM relator will receive a percentage of the ultimate victory, which given our example of the penalties permitted by the FCA, even a percentage of that recovery is real money. But that's not all. In order to incentivize lawyers to bring these claims, which as this case showed, can take many years to resolve, the Ketam Relator's attorney will receive a contingency fee that is based on the settlement amount recovered by the government. Plus, they're awarded attorney's fees from the defendant that will be based on the time that they spent on the case. So losing an FCA case can be very costly, and that does not include what can come next, which will typically depend on the nature of the offense, but can include exclusion from all federal health care program and loss of license. But what does the SCA prohibit? It prohibits any claim that is submitted to the government for payment that the person submitting the claim knows is false or is submitted in reckless disregard of whether or deliberate ignorance of whether it is false. Typically, when we discuss a case that involves the FCA, the defendant is alleged to have performed medically unnecessary services, billed a federal health care program services that were not provided, upcoded by billing the government more than they should have, or performed the service so badly that the government has claimed that the services were worthless and a claim should not have been submitted, thus making a federal case out of a malpractice claim. But that is not why we are here today, nor is the reason that is it the reason that most FCA claims are brought today? No, the benefit of the FCA to the government and to KETAM relators is that the FCA can be used to enforce other laws. In healthcare, the FCA is typically used to enforce the Stark Law and the Medicare Anti-Kickback Statute that we'll refer to as the AKS. As we discussed in our fourth episode of this podcast, cleverly titled, But for the Grace of Fraud Go I, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals has made it more difficult to bring a key TAM case that is based on the AK, the anti-kickback statute. That case also made it clear that even if a case is based on the anti-kickback statute, which is a criminal statute and typically requires proof beyond a reasonable doubt, 
Since the case is being brought under the FCA, the more lenient preponderance of the evidence burden of proof applies. Now, what's the English translation of all that? The FCA makes it easier for the government to prove its case, even if it's being brought based on the anti-kickback statute. And as Hale will now discuss, today's case showed that an FCA case that is based on the violation of the anti-kickback statute is still alive and well, and now easier for the government to prove than if the government tried to bring a criminal anti-kickback claim on its own. Hala, why don't you tell us what happened here? Absolutely, Henry. So this particular key TAM suit was filed by a relator or whistleblower who has since been identified as Kip Faisenmeyer. Now, Mr. Faisenmeyer worked at SitePath Medical for over 15 years, and a few of those years were spent as vice president. SitePath was a corporate partner of Precision Lens. So Although it's not clear, and we, n we never know for sure how Mr. Faisenmeyer knew the facts that he alleged in the suit, it's pretty likely that he gained this knowledge by virtue of his, his position in a corner partnership with Precision Lens. When Mr. Faisenmeyer okay. filed his key TAM in 2013, the government took on the arduous task of investigating the merits of, Mr. of his claims against Precision Lens and its owner, Mr. Aylin. Although the government is supposed to only have 60 days to intervene, they typically ask for several extensions in order to do a more thorough review. And as you can tell by the length of time between the time this case was filed and when it was just resolved in 2023, that is exactly what happened here. The government kept filing for extension after extension in order to be sure that this was a matter worth intervening. Then in February 2018, which is five years after the initial complaint was filed by the Keaton Relator, the government decided to intervene in this case by filing an intervention complaint. So, Hala, what exactly did Precision Lens and Mr. Halen do that landed them in hot water with the feds? So, as we already mentioned, Precision Lens manufactures and distributes interocular lenses, or IOLs, that are used in cataract surgery. Now, given the age of the typical cataract patient, most of the patients who receive the Precision Lens IOLs are covered by Medicare. Now, IOLs are a hospital and amb ambulatory surgical center technical service, and as such, are included in the amount that the government pays to the facility in which the IOL is implanted. Now, payments for technical services are a one-time lump sum fee, regardless of which IOL the provider uses. I think it's easiest to think of this payment like you paid $100 to be at an all-inclusive resort, and you pay $100 whether you spend the day in your room drinking water or you're out and about eating six meals a day and having a drink every 30 minutes. It doesn't matter which IOL you get. The cost is the cost. It's also important to note that Precision Lens made several different types of IOLs, some more expensive than the others, and these are important facts to keep in mind when considering some of the arguments that were made by Precision Lens and Mr. Allen. Now, the basis for the government's case was the anti-kickback statute. As we've discussed in the past, the anti-kickback statute is an intent-based criminal statute that prohibits the payment of remuneration in cash or kind that's intended to induce the referral of patients or the ordering of items or services that are paid for in whole or in part by federal government program, most notably the Medicare program. So the overarching allegations in this case were that Precision Lens and Mr. Allen were providing remuneration to induce ophthalmologists to use their IOLs over a 10-year period. So what was the remuneration at issue in this case? It wasn't money. That would be too obvious. 
Rather, the key TAM relator and ultimately the federal government alleged that Precision and Mr. Ellen provided kickbacks to physicians, ophthalmologists specifically, in various forms, including travel and entertainment. The United States alleged that the remuneration in this case consisted of multiple trips, including high-end skiing, fishing, golfing, hunting, sporting, and entertainment vacations, often at very exclusive destinations. And as part of this remuneration alleged that for many of the trips, Precision Lens and Alen transported physicians to luxury vacation destinations on private jets that were typically flown by Mr. Alen. Now, these trips included to go to places like New York City, to see a Broadway musical, the college football national championship in Miami, and the Masters Golf Tournament in Augusta, Georgia. So Precision Lens and Mr. Allen were also alleged to have sold frequent flyer miles to their physician customers at a significant discount, enabling the physicians to take personal and business trips at well below fair market value. Now, this case went to a jury trial, and the government had evidence that all these things had been provided. So to most of us, you'd think, why in the world would you push your luck and go to trial? Henry and I even discussed this when we selected this case for this episode. And it's hard to understand at first blush, but when you read the pleadings, you get a little better understanding of the defendant's mindset. And I think there were a couple of reasons why they decided to roll the dice and not settle this case. First, the technical. Again, not to go too far into the weeds, but the IOLs at issue were a technical service that is paid to a facility where the IOL is implanted by Medicare Part A. The alleged remuneration was provided to physicians who bill Medicare Part B for their professional services. There were no allegations of medically unnecessary services, upcoding, or any of the things that I discussed earlier. So the first question raised by Precision Lens and Mr. Allen was, that even if these kickbacks were paid, which of course they denied, they were provided to the physicians, not to the hospitals who purchased the IOLs. They then argued that how can the defendants be held liable for the hospital's IOL purchasing decision? Interesting argument, and and it is a very interesting technical argument. However, unfortunately for the the um, defendants in this case, the government was able to present evidence. The physicians had a say in which IOLs the hospitals stocked, and also presented evidence that some of the physicians started using more expensive IOLs after their precision lens paid trips. But the real reason that I think the provi- that Precision Lens and Mr. Allen decided to try their luck with a jury is that the anti-kickback statute is an intent-based statute. The government needed to prove that the trips were provided as an inducement to get the physicians to order Precision Lens IOL. Mr. Allen claimed that he was personal friends with these docs and the trips were gifts from one friend to another. The anti-kickback statute does not prohibit one friend from providing a gift to another friend, even if those friends happen to do business with each other. So how do we know what their arguments were? Well, according to one of the court filings, Precision Lens and Mr. Allen claimed that the government applied, and I quote, broad brushstrokes to social events while leaving unmentioned evidence of longstanding friendships, the nature of the trips, defendant's social intent, defendant's general practice of invoicing physicians for cost, and physicians' payment for their share of the cost of the trip. 
So Precision Lens and Mr. Inland essentially argued that the government did not have a case because the troops were gifts between friends, not an inducement to refer uh, or order Precision Lens IOLs. In addition, where it was required, Precision Lens claimed that the physicians paid their share of things. They argued that the relationship that Mr. Allen had with some of the physicians was a reciprocal friendship, and many of these physicians had long-standing preferences in the type of IOL they used, often going back to the residency for products distributed. So whatever Precision Lens and Mr. Allen may have provided to the doctors, they were not kickbacks, just things friends do for each other. Hala, what was the government's response? Yes, Henry. So, armed with their friendship defense, Precision Lens and Aylin took the case to a jury where it endured a six-week jury trial. And as you can guess, to get on this episode, things did not go well for them. So, at trial, the government rebutted Precision Lens and Mr. Aylin's claims with evidence. And reading through some of the government's memos, you get the sense that they had a lot of evidence that could swing a jury. So, for example... They had evidence that in 2009, Precision contemplated halting the fishing and hunting trips. And there was a mention that they needed to monitor the effect this had on sales. In case you're wondering, they stopped, they uh, undid their halting on these. They had evidence that after some trips, physicians who had always used other IOLs suddenly switched to Precision Lens. There was also an internal email chain that said, want those miles back after one physician failed to move forward with an agreement but seemingly had already been provided the sky miles at the discounted rate. Additionally, they had testimony that Precision Lens employees did not take friends outside of those they knew through Precision Lens on trips on private planes. And it's pretty hard to claim that this is something you do for your friends if you only do it for one very, very specific friend group. So in the end, the United States was able to convince a jury that the various gifts that Precision Lens and its owner, Mr. Allen, provided to the ophthalmic surgeons were intended to induce the physician's use of Precision Lens IOLs in cataract surgeries were reimbursed by Medicare. The government was also able to prove that Precision Lens maintained a fund, referred to internally at Precision Lens as a secret fund or slush fund, in furtherance of its kickback. Precision Lens used money from the secret fund to finance the, these multiple physician trips. So the jury found that the defendant's kickbacks caused the submission of 64,575 false claims over a 10-year period to the Medicare program between 2016 and 2015. And returned a verdict in favor of the United States for more than $43 million for violations of the False Claims Act and anti-kickback statute. But when you put that number into perspective using the formula Henry walked us through earlier, I think they got a deal. So no matter how you look at it, that's a high cost for friendship. And we can't forget one of the most important parts of the Keetam suit as described above. That's the Keetam relator in this case. And again, the, things like the slush fund would be very difficult for the government to ever find, but for uh, their uh, insider, such as the Keytam Relator, pointing the government in the direction and telling them about it. So the Keytam Relator will receive a percentage of the amount awarded at trial. His attorneys are also due for a nice payday after their contingency arrangement with him, with the Keytam Relator. Plus, the attorney's fees that Precision Lens and Mr. Allen will be required to pay to them. 
I think it's also worth mentioning, in addition to all the evidence that Hala described, that the government had a medical device marketing expert testify at trial on how companies use gifts and incentives to influence physicians to use their product. This expert witness provided research that showed that gifts and other incentives trigger the impulse to reciprocate, even if it's just done subconsciously and even at levels disproportionate to the gift. And the expert witness testified that although the doctors generally claim that their medical decisions are not influenced by the financial benefits they receive from product manufacturers, these benefits do in fact have a strong influence on decision making. As difficult as it may seem to turn down a trip to the Final Four or the Masters, by accepting that trip, you're opening yourself up to liability. There is an old OIG training video that's still available on the internet on the OIG's website that discusses the anti-kickback statute, where the OIG agent states that what is a common practice in other areas of commerce is a crime in healthcare. In other areas of commerce, a vendor-sponsored trip to the Masters or to the Final Four or to the NCAA championship game or Broadway, it's a common practice. These companies expend the resources for such trips because, as the expert witness in this testified, they work. They get clients to use the vendor services. However, in healthcare, because of the anti-kickback statute and the Stark Law, we are required to recommend against client hospitals and physicians accepting any kind of trip such as this. That is not welcome news to our clients. But this case is an excellent example of how the anti-kickback statute makes healthcare different from other areas of commerce. And in reality, when you look at the cost, expense, and ultimately the damages that were awarded, this case is also an excellent example of how expensive it can be for a client who ignores that advice. If you want to learn more about the False Claims Act, the Anti-Kickback Statute, the Stark Law, uh, amendments to these laws, and much more, considering joining Dan Mulholland and myself in Phoenix, November 16th to 18th, 2023, for our next seminar. In the interim, we be sure to check out the Horty Springer website to find out how to receive our free weekly newsletter, the Health Law Express, as well as for more information about new and upcoming opportunities on this and many other health law-related topics. Thanks for listening and tune in to the next edition of the Kickback Chronicles so you can keep learning from the misfortune of others. 